Well, good morning, all. Good morning. Let me invite you to stay standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. Today, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. Uh, the story of the church is what we're titling this series. And we learned in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, that it's not just that Jesus did some things on earth, but that he was continuing to do things through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to this passage today, we'll see one of the most important things that the Holy Spirit does is he gathers believers in a community called the church. So let's uh, pay attention now to God's very word that comes to us from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would add to our number day by day those who are being saved. We pray that prayer in hope and expectation that you are still at work. We pray that one of those works that you would do today by your Spirit is to give us ears to hear and hearts ready to love you and to obey your word. Speak through me. Help us to respond well and with great faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a story is told about a man who was stranded on a deserted island by himself for a number of years, and when he was finally rescued, the rescuers noticed that there were four buildings uh, on, his, uh, on the island that he had constructed, not big buildings, just kind of little ones, bamboo uh, and straw and things like that. And the rescuers said, well, what are those four buildings? And he said, oh, those four buildings. Well, the first one on the left, that's my home. The second one is where I go to church. And the third one is where I work. And the rescuer said, but that's, that's three. What about the fourth building? Oh, that? Yeah, that's where I used to go to church. I had never heard that before. And then Victor told me, he told me not to give him credit for that because I think it's been going around. I just thought that's hilarious. Like that's what we do at church, right? Like a deserted island by yourself, you're still going to find a way to exit that church. We live in a really funny time, don't we? It's never been easier to find a community. Go online, type in what you're looking for. You can find a community but it's also never been easier to leave a community. It's hard to stay. It's easy to find a reason to dip, as the kids say these days. There's always a reason to leave. I think we know intuitively some of the benefits of a community, right? You can do things in a community that you would never do on your own. Join a cycling club and you have some accountability to get up early and go for that early morning bike ride right? Join a reading club, and my guess is you'll be a better reader. Go to a CrossFit gym, and I have no idea what those cults do. <laughs> the power of a community always leads to deepening in the community, right? That you're part of the mission, the cause, if you will. 
Now, mostly the cause is pretty innocuous, right? Running groups make runners. Chess groups make grandmasters if you're really smart and lucky. But what happens if the cause is a little bit more problematic? Group radicalization theory tells us that like-minded individuals in a group can often become more extreme when they're in the group than the most extreme member of the group. Hence, our community problem. That's a problem for us. Human beings desperately need community, but we're also really wary of the ways that community can become harmful. And I have to say something, there's no more harmful place than the church. The church can really go wrong. I heard a, someone talking just yesterday on a podcast, and he made a really keen observation. He said, the church is kind of like nuclear power. One of the most efficient forms of energy that the world has ever seen, but when it goes wrong, it can be devastating. Frankly, the cause when it comes to the church can do some bad things, right? It can excuse poor leaders, paper over those faulty accounts, even excuse really bad evils perpetrated. It's no wonder that it's easy for Christians to run away from the church. Today, that's what we're seeing more and more, right? Deconstruction. I don't want to be a part of that. If that's what the church is like, I'm out. But despite all of this, when we read a passage like Acts chapter 2, we know, we know that God is still building His church. That's the promise that He's made to us. And so when we go back to a passage like that, we need to go back to that passage and say, okay, God, if you're still about the church, how do we need to go about following you in the way that you want to build and grow your community? Your community? Tim, Gell Tim Keller He's a smart guy, recognized the propensity of the church to do bad things, to radicalize in bad ways, and he said this, there is one thing that the church really needs to be radical about, just one thing. The church has to be radical about the gospel. The church has to be radical about one thing, the gospel of grace. Maybe a good question for us in the church as we evaluate what it's about is to ask this question, what is the church making you into? If the gospel is central, then we should find more and more people who are deepening in their discipleship, a greater love for God, a fragrance of mercy to our enemies, a zeal for justice, service to our neighbor. But if something else is central, we'll probably see more legalists, more political operatives, more social activists, and more people burned out of church. Lord, may it not be here, right? Our passage today gives us a beautiful blueprint about what gospel centrality should look like in the church. And we're going to unpack it in just two ways. We're going to look at this. Gospel centrality in the church. We're going to ask, what are the characteristics of a gospel-centered church? And then, what are the practices of a gospel-centered church? For you uh, types that like an outline, the characteristics and the practices of a gospel-centered church. So first, let's look at the characteristics of a gospel-centered church. There are two that really pop out. The church must be devoted to the apostolic message and in awe of God. 
First, the church is devoted to the apostolic message. Look at verse 42. We are, uh, the Holy Spirit makes us devoted to the apostolic teaching. Verse 43, the community experienced apostolic signs and wonders. Now, one of the most important ministries of the Holy Spirit was that He authenticated the apostles. He showed us that the apostles knew what they were talking about. This is why so many signs and wonders were done by them, is because people said, oh, what these guys are saying is joined to amazing power from God. In John's gospel, Jesus says to the apostles, hey, I'm going to send my spirit to bring remembrance to you of all the things that I did and taught. And it's funny, when you're reading that passage, you're like, oh, I, don't, I can't remember the things Jesus didn't taught. I wasn't there. But what the Holy Spirit does is he brings to remembrance what Jesus didn't taught to the apostles so that they could teach us about who Jesus is. Every gospel-centered church is built on the proclamation of the apostles. Do you remember in the Nicene Creed, one of the things we read toward the end, what is the church characterized by? It's one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It's an apostolic church. So let's break that down a little bit more. A gospel-centered church is apostolic insofar as the message of Jesus Christ that the apostles proclaimed is front and center. It informs everything. That's why Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except for Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Not because Paul doesn't know other things, but because Paul is determined to help us to, through the lens of the gospel, understand everything else. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. This is what this means. Unless you understand Jesus, you don't understand the Scriptures. Unless you understand Jesus, you don't really understand what life is about. See? Jesus is the interpretive key for all of the Christian scriptures and all of the Christian life. That's why Pastor Paul said that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life last week. It's the A to Z. And if there's one thing that we need to get at Redeemer, it's that the gospel is both the microscope and the telescope and the spectacles and the contact lenses of the Christian life and all of life. Now, to be sure... The implications of the gospel touch everything. The gospel has something to say about science and politics and race and art and the merger of the PGA Tour and Live Golf. But we can't let any of those things get in the way of the gospel. We can't look at life through the lens of those things first. Right? Sure, we need to be thoughtful about economic policy. But it was a really bad thing when Christians in the 50s, 60s, 70s decided that they were going to use the Bible as a manifesto against communism. It's not what it's about, first and foremost. It's really good that we think a lot about race relations, right? It's profoundly important. But if that becomes the interpretive grid of life, then we lose the gospel, which is the message of salvation, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
God has given us amazing, amazing insights into human psychology. But when self-empowerment becomes more important than sin and grace, then we lose the message of God, right? While Jesus is Lord is the most profound political statement that's ever been uttered, one day all of our political manifestos will bow the knee to that Lord. We don't preach morality. We don't preach morality here. We preach the gospel that informs our morality, right? We don't preach politics. We preach the gospel that informs our politics. The church loses her way every time when something other than the gospel is central to our message. And that's why we have to be devoted to the apostolic message. Devoted. Let's think again about what this devotion entailed. These verses are coming on the heels of 3,000 people coming to faith in Jesus. You know that guy that was crucified about 50 days before this event happened? Think about what that devotion meant to these individuals. Devotion means loss before gain. Devotion means scorn before prestige. Devotion devotion means aligning yourselves against the powers that be for the sake of Jesus Christ. I was watching a show the other day and a parishioner was talking to a new pastor at the church and he was giving him the cliff notes about how to be a good pastor at the church. He says, look, people just want this church to be a place where they can raise their family and worship God and go on with their lives how they please. This is what he was essentially saying. Please, pastor, can we be the church in Laodicea? Neither hot nor cold. Please, pastor, I will pursue the gospel as long as you let me pursue the American dream first. I think many of us need to admit that's kind of where our hearts are. That's a little bit where our hearts are sometimes, right? Right, just give me a one hour per week social club sprinkled with a little theism, and my kids will grow up to be nice, decent people. Now, I know that's where your hearts are, because that's where my heart is sometimes. Truly, right? I know that temptation. The way this works out for pastors and ministry leaders is we just give in to the pressure to kind of phone it in sometimes. Nice sermons. Not a whole lot of pick up your cross and follow Jesus especially today. On Ordination and Installation Sunday, that's happening in the second service. Help us, Lord, as leaders and parishioners to be devoted to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We don't want to hear what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. But those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, be devoted, and repent. The second characteristic of a gospel-centered church is all of God. It's all of God. Hearts engaged in true worship, people experiencing real change. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Then skipping to the end of verse 46 and the start of 47, they had glad and generous hearts praising God. It's a great description. 
That word soul connotes the deep seed of emotional and spiritual life of a person. The awe of God, therefore, is not protestation or prosperity. Excuse me. I don't even know how to say that word. Why did I write it down in my sermon? Prostration or show. It's not prostration or show. It's not ostentatious or outward. It's deep. It comes from the heart or the soul. It's fear and reverence for the glory and holiness of God. It's men struck by their sin and knowing the grace of God that forgives them and welcomes them back. Even the phrase glad and generous hearts almost doesn't make sense. Generous person overflowing with blessings, a joy that is not just contained within you, but is spilling out and welcoming and bringing other people into that joy. F.F. Bruce says this, the conviction of sin that followed Peter's preaching was no momentary panic, but filled the people with a lasting sense of awe. God was at work among them. They were witnessing the dawn of a new age. Here's the deal. Even the most melancholic Christian, even the most melancholic in personality among us has a joy, has to have a joy that runs deeper than anything that someone of this world could ever possibly know. So first and foremost, I don't want you to get down on yourselves because you're not experiencing that all at all times. I just want you to pray and ask God, God, help me. Give me more joy. Give me more awe. Give me worship from the heart that really clings to you in faith. So what characterizes a gospel-centered church? Simple, a devotion to Christ, a devotion to the apostolic message, the gospel. Secondly, and this will be more brief, the practices of a gospel-centered church are these. There are really three main practices here. Gathered worship, intentional fellowship, generous giving. The first practical thing the gospel-centered church does is gathered worship. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. That article is actually important. The article V is a designation. It's almost like a capitalization of these things. In verse 46, we see actually two of these things again clustered together, fellowship and breaking of bread, but without the the. And this has led most commentators to understand that what's happening in verse 42 is that Luke is describing a sort of proto-gathered worship together. Gathered worship together. This is further shown in Acts 20, verse 7, when, when Luke calls the gathering of worship the breaking of bread on the first day of week together. Now, here's what this means. Central to being a church is gathering on a Sunday morning. You probably knew that. You're here. It's gathering on a Sunday morning for teaching and praying and the sacraments. We have a live stream, and it's great. It's really helpful when you are sick or providentially hindered or a shut-in, but it's not an excuse to go to church in your PJs. Amen? There we go. You know what I love? I love it when I look out and there's some kid in his baseball uniform at church. Do you know why I love that? Because the, the parents have like made the effort. They're like, okay, we've got baseball at nine and we're going to figure out how to get there. And he's going to be really smelly and stinky, but we're going to sit in the back and still find a way of making it. I love that. I think it's good for us to realize that gathered worship has got to be central 
in the church. It's been that way since day one. This also means this. You can worship in your car. You can worship in nature. You can worship wherever and whenever you are. You should. But there's always been a big W worship that we're called to ever since the very beginning of the church. There's always a big W worship. It's the gathered community of believers on the first day of the week. The third thing this means, and I'm going to stop short of saying it's a biblical rule, but, but oftentimes in the early church, they celebrated communion. It was like every week. Now, I don't say you have to do that. You don't. But it's really nice that we celebrate communion every week here because if I've completely bottled a sermon, you know that the gospel is going to be displayed for you in the breaking of bread in the table. The second practice we see here is intentional fellowship. We see it in the repetition of gathering times in the church. Not only did the believers gather in 42, but also in 44 and 46, they gathered for meals and in homes. At Redeemer, it would be really hard to gather all 900 members of us in a home, wouldn't it? It would be really hard, especially in the day and age, to gather 3,000 members together in a home. I think nigh on impossible. You'd have to go to Caesar's home to do that. So what Luke is saying is, hey, you want to know what being a church is like? It means gathering in these smaller communities. If you're not part of a community group yet, that's Bryant McGee. He's one of our pastors. You probably know him. Bryant at RedeemerSA.org. Email him. Hey, Bryant, I need to be in a smaller fellowship. I need to be in a community group. Just yesterday, we gathered our community group in a home to love and send off a family that was leaving to go on to their next assignment in Spokane. It's good for us to gather in these smaller fellowships, to break bread, to pray together, to get to know one another. Do that. Do that, please. Amy Arguello in the women's ministry. I don't know if she's in here. Amy at RedeemerSA.org. I'm going to give you all their information. Email her. Be a part of the women's ministry. The men's ministry are really excited about what we're doing next fall. We're not ready quite to tell you all about it, but not just the Wednesday morning Bible study, but we're opening up other avenues for us as men to get connected to one another. Make use of all these little groups. It's really important. Finally, the last practice of the church that we see in this passage is generous giving. Generous giving. It's the one that we've all been waiting for. Can't wait to talk about this. Gospel-centered churches have people who are deeply invested in the kingdom of God. Verse 44, they had all things in common. Verse 45, they were selling their belongings and giving to those who had need. Now, we know this isn't a full-blown commune. We know that because in Acts chapter 5, it seems that people still had private possessions and they would pledge them so that others could, be, could share in those uh, proceeds from the sales. It's not fully communism, but there is a generosity here that is much much deeper than token giving. And it begs the question, is that you? Are you deeply invested in the church? Do you consider regular giving one of the most important assets in your portfolio? Or do you consider it a deficit? The reality is we're all invested in something, aren't we? question is, is it something good that we're invested in? Robert Quillen famously described Americanism as buying things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. 
That's a great phrase. That's a foolish investment. That's a foolish investment. What if we gave our money generously to those who have need to bring others into a kingdom that they can't lose? That's a wise investment. Sometimes tell people that the first check we write in our business office in the church is to our people, to the, to like the people who work at Redeemer. Like we would let the electricity go off before we didn't pay the people that work here. And the reason I say that is because it means that the more you give, it's not like it's going to us. It's not like, wouldn't it be terrible, a per person in the pew bonus? That would be awful. That money doesn't go to us, it goes to mission. Guess who it goes to? Beham family, our family is just like any normal family here. We tithe to Redeemer too. We're just one small part of this community called the church. As we give, we give because we want to see Redeemer's mission go forward. When you put money in a stock, what's the first thing you do? You make sure to add that stock's ticker on your phone. You want to see how it's doing. You become more invested. You make a monetary investment in something, and guess what happens? You lean into the mission and vision a little bit more. You invest blood and sweat equity as well as money, and you see the mission of Redeemer go forward. In America, we like doing new things, don't we? We're like, let's tear it down and do something new. But it turns out that we're not going to reinvent church. We're not going to reinvent church. Apostolic teaching, worship, sacraments, fellowship, and giving, these were all God's ideas, and we can't really improve upon them. But we can choose to live in it more. And I think especially in today's age, where we are as a generation, especially my generation and below, just ready to dip out of community, especially in today, we have the responsibility as a church community to show something good and beautiful to the world. People say, I want to be involved in a place where I can be truly known and loved. I want to be involved in something both true and greater than myself. The church is called into that space, people who are lost. So let's jump in deeper. And pray with verse 47 here, Lord, may you add to our number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to grow and to deepen. Even if we have to take little baby steps into the church, we pray, Lord, that you would help us go deeper and further in. Lord God, we also pray for the peace and the purity of your church. Pray for the peace and purity of your leaders. We ask, Lord, that you would give us all humility. Would we lead in repentance and neediness? Would we be those people who know we don't have it all together, but we look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith? Pray all these things in his name. Amen.